All right, good morning. So like Keith said, uh, we're in between sermon series right now, uh, but we are returning to Genesis briefly uh, this morning because in this uh, non-series of uh, a grab bag of sermon topics, I really felt led to go back to Genesis to look at a passage that's actually one of my personal favorites. I'd say this is somewhere in the top 10 of passages that have ministered to me personally, have had a a significant effect on my life. And uh, the story is a weird story. Makes sense that I would like it. I like the weird ones. Uh, And it's part of the story of Jacob. And specifically, it's the story of Jacob wrestling someone. So if you have your Bibles, make your way to Genesis chapter 32. Now, I want to start this morning with a question, which is, what is the church? I think that there's actually multiple true ways of answering that question, right? The church is uh, the group of people on earth who are proclaiming that Jesus is risen. The church is the group of people on earth who are called to bring the gospel message to the nations. Uh, The church is the group of people on earth that are called by God to help transform this earth so that it's more like heaven. Those are all true answers to the question of what is the church. But I think we can answer that question in an even more fundamental way by saying the church is the group of people on earth who have met God. The church is the group of people on earth who have met God. There's something about having a personal relationship with God that is at the heart of our faith. And that's basically what Jesus says in John 17, 3. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, this is what life is all about. This is where full and abundant life is. It's in knowing God, and more specifically, in knowing God through Jesus Christ, the one whom God has sent. That's what life's all about. That's the whole point. And I want us to notice, it's not just knowing God in the sense of knowing things about God, the way like if you collected baseball cards and you know facts about your favorite players on the back of the card. It's actually knowing God in a relational sense. You can know things about somebody. You can know a lot of things about somebody without actually having met them. But what Jesus is saying is that real life, what life is all about, is about actually knowing God, actually meeting God. You know, we as the church, we can do a lot of good in the world. Okay, we can, you know, send gifts to impoverished kids at Christmas time through Operation Christmas Child. Awesome thing to do. We can uh, help to feed the hungry. Uh, we can help to alleviate the suffering of the homeless. We can do all kinds of community service. We should do all those things. Those are important things to do that we're called to do. But if we don't know God, if we, if we haven't met God, if we're not in relationship with him, we're missing out. We're missing out. on on real, full life. Now, the reason that I bring all this up is because this weird story that we're about to look at is the story of what happens when a man named Jacob really meets God. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from this story about what it's like to meet God, what happens when we actually meet God, and, and what happens when we are continually meeting with God throughout our lives. So... 
Let's look at the passage. Again, this is uh, Genesis 32, starting in verse 22. It says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, big family, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. Now, this is part of a much larger story that we don't have time to to get into this morning. But the gist of the situation here is that Jacob is about to have an encounter with his brother Esau. And he's pretty nervous about that because he wronged Esau very seriously earlier in his life. And he's worried that Esau is going to try to kill him or hurt his family. And so in this moment, he sent everything that he has in the world, his his family, uh, all of his possessions across this river. And he is now alone in his fear and in his anxiety. And he's got nothing, no possessions, no people to alleviate that or to distract him from his fear and his anxiety. And in that state, something very strange happens. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. It's weird, right? We're not told who the man was. There's There's no man that's been reappearing throughout this story that just bursts through the wall like the Kool-Aid guy and goes, you know, I'm going to get you. There's nothing like that has been happening throughout this story. Uh, We're not told who who picked the fight or why. We're just told that as Jacob was in this state of aloneness, removed from all those sources of security and wealth, suddenly he found himself wrestling with somebody, and he wrestled throughout the entire night. Now, I doubt that most of us have ever been in a physical fight that lasted for an entire night. Uh, Hopefully, that hasn't happened to any of you guys. Um, But I think that what is being described here is actually pretty relatable for most of us. Because who hasn't lost a night of sleep because you are wrestling with something? You know, something mentally, something spiritually, something emotionally, something that you just can't let go of, a, a fear, an anxiety, anger. You know, I know I have had many sleepless nights because I've been wrestling with something. Uh, When we are left alone and in the dark and we don't have all the ordinary distractions of the day, uh, there's something about that that makes it so we we just can't ignore those things that we're wrestling with. In fact, there have been periods of time in my life where I have always fallen asleep with the TV on because the TV made it possible for me to not worry about certain things because the sound drowned out the silence, if you will. Um, So... I think most of us can understand this. Now, continuing in verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Okay, now, this is where things get really weird. uh, Because it it says that the man couldn't overpower Jacob, but he was able to wrench his hip just by touching it. Boop. Not by uh, smashing his hip with a club, right? Not by pulling some sort of WWF magic on him, just by, boop, touching his hip. And you know, it seems to me that if this man was able to wrench his hip just by touching him, he wasn't really in danger of being overpowered unless he allowed it. 
because this is the kind of man who can just wrench a hip by touching it. So that's the first clue that we have here that this man, and for anyone who listens online, I'm using air quotes right now, man isn't just an ordinary man. All right, verse 26. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Now, here I think we have really good reason to be suspicious that this is not just an ordinary man. So one reason is because this man thinks he has the authority to give Jacob a new name. You know, there's something about naming somebody that shows that you have authority over them. If you, if you met somebody and you said, you know, hi, my name's Tom, and they said, hi, actually, I'm going to call you Jim instead. That would be offensive, right? Because it's a way, he doesn't have the right to tell you what your name is, right? But, but this man seems to think that he has the authority to give Jacob a new name. And the other evidence that this is, this is not just uh, an ordinary man is the name that he gives, right? The name that he gives is Israel, which can actually be translated several different ways. But in this passage, in this context, it really seems like the name is meant to be translated as struggles with God. Struggles with God. Um, that's what it says, you know, you will be called Israel. Why? Because you have struggled with God and with men and overcome. If I was fighting with somebody and then after the fight the person said, your name will now be fights with God, I would think, well, I guess that person thinks he's God, right? I, I probably wouldn't think he actually was God, but uh, I would assume that guy at least thinks that he's God. So th this is another clue here. It's not just an ordinary man. This is some sort of manifestation of God. Continuing, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? So here, I think we have another clue that this man is not just an ordinary man because the man's, the, the man's answer is basically, come on, you know who I am, right? Why do you ask my name? You know. Now, if, if he was saying that and he was an ordinary man, we would expect Jacob to be like, oh yeah, you know, you're Bill. I know because we've been face to face all night fighting with each other and I recognize your face. But he doesn't say that, right? And that tells us that whoever this man is, it's not an ordinary man that Jacob would know, but it is somebody that he should know. Okay, so that's a short list of beings that that could be, right? He's God. And then it tells us, then he blessed him there. In other words, then he pronounced favor on Jacob. He imparted to him a sense of joy and peace. He fed his hungry soul. He blessed him. Continuing, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. And you know, I would say if you still have any doubt that this man is actually God, this is where it seals the deal. 
right? Because Jacob himself says, now this place is going to be called Peniel, which means the face of God. So in other words, now this place is going to be called the place where I saw the face of God, the place where I met God, the place where I didn't just know things about God, but where I actually encountered God, I met him. So, weird story, right? But it is so good. I love this story. And what I want to offer us today are four things that this story suggests about what happens when we meet God. So the first thing, it's a personal experience. When we really meet God, it's a personal experience. Remember, Jacob was alone. And I think that's very significant. The moment that he has this life-changing encounter is when he's by himself. Now, I'm not trying to say that God doesn't uh, lead us to himself through other people, that we don't encounter God when we're with other people. I mean, that's part of the whole purpose of church. That's why we get together like we are right now. Uh, God has designed us to encounter him in certain ways only when we are together, and I would never want to deny that. But if we're really going to know God, if we're really going to know him personally, there has to be a dimension of our experience that is totally personal. Okay, It's just between him and us. If our faith is only communal, if it only happens in the context of being around other people, something's missing. Okay, We actually have to make that connection with God ourselves. We have to make it personal. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we ever pray when there's nobody else around to hear our prayer? Do we ever think about God when there's no other Christians around to talk to about him? Do we ever read the Bible when we don't have to prepare a sermon? That one's for me. (laughs) Um, Because if we don't ever do any of those things, our relationship with God, it hasn't really become personal. And if it's never become personal, we haven't really met him yet. You know, over, over my life as a Christian... Uh, I've, I've been to a lot of conferences and retreats and worship concerts and that sort of thing. And a lot of those were great experiences. You know, the, the music, the crowd, the lights, the smoke, the mirrors. God uses all that stuff. I'm not, I don't want to be um, negative about that. But I still think that the most authentic encounters with God happen at the conference after somebody goes back to their hotel room and they're alone in the stillness. Right? Or after you've been to the worship concert and you go home and you get on your, your knees with your, the, the sound still ringing in your ears and you pray before God. When we really meet God, we don't just meet him with other people, but we meet him in that solitude, in that personal experience. And if we never had that personal experience, when the temptations and trials of life come, our faith withers. Okay. Second thing that happens when we really meet God is it involves struggle. It involves struggle. And this is the thing I actually want to talk about the most. Now, I can think of uh, two ways that actually meeting God involves struggle. And the first way is this, uh, because God challenges us to get real with ourselves. Because God challenges us to get real with ourselves. Every one of us, myself included, has a 
a natural desire to think highly of ourselves. Uh, we want to think that we are basically good, basically intelligent, basically reasonable. You know, we want to we think when we're driving, it's all the other drivers on the road that have a problem. Uh, we want to think that if we suffer a broken relationship, it's really the other person's fault that the relationship is broken. Uh, we want to think that if we subscribe to a certain political party, that the other political party is always wrong. Um, you know, it's always the other person's fault. It's always the other group's fault. And to be fair, sometimes it is the other drivers that are the ones with the problem. Sometimes it is the other political party that's more messed up. Sometimes it is the other person that broke the relationship. But the key word there is sometimes. Not all the time. When we get real with ourselves, we can't help but realize that we ourselves are part of the problem. Uh, we can't help but realize that you know, all of our excuses, they don't always add up. Sometimes the things that we say to justify our behavior, sometimes those excuses aren't valid. And we personally all fall short of the glory of God. And I think when we really meet God, when we really encounter him, God shines his light of truth on us. If you were in small groups this week, you know that we looked at a passage that's uh, from 1 John, and it's about how when we walk with God, we walk in the light, which means that when we walk in, in the light, uh, when we walk with God, <clears throat> we walk in the light of truth, okay? We're honest with ourselves and with God and with others. That's what, part of what it means to walk with God, is to walk in the light of truth. And so when we meet God, when we really encounter him, and we step into that light of truth, it can be painful. Because suddenly we start to see ourselves for who we really are, you know, flaws and all. And that can hurt, because it can hurt to have this false image of ourselves that we've created to make us think that we're always right, shattered. It hurts to realize that we've lied or that we've been unfaithful, or that we've taken advantage of people in some way, or that even that we've been impatient or rude. And it especially hurts to realize when, when our excuses for our behavior aren't really valid, and, and it hurts even more to put in the, the work of, of actually changing our behavior. Now, I am a big fan of C.S. Lewis, uh, and there's a great quote of his from one of his famous books, his most famous books, Mere Christianity, and it describes this process that, that we experience of realizing our sin and the pain that comes with recognizing it and, and working uh, to change. And he puts it this way. I love this. He says, imagine yourself uh, a living house. So imagine you are a house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the room and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us, filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, 
pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. He really had a way with words. I love that. So that's why meeting God involves struggle. Because when God's transforming the house, it can feel like a wrestling match between him and our sin. And sometimes we say, you know what? I can't take it. <laughs> I don't want to change. I don't want the palace to get built. Uh, it, it's too much work. I don't want to get real. I want to go back to the illusion that I'm okay. I'm fine just the way I am. And so what we do is we tap out of the wrestling match. And we go and do our own thing. We stop getting real. We stop struggling. We stop being honest with ourselves. And we stop meeting with God. A second reason why um, <clears throat> meeting with God involves struggle is because God challenges our minds and our understanding. God challenges our minds and our understanding. Now, I've realized that some people struggle more than others in this area, but I have to confess, this is an area that I have struggled with a lot with God. And what I mean by this is just that sometimes God doesn't make sense to us. You know, when we try to understand God in his ways, it's really hard. Sometimes the Bible is confusing. You know, many of us have doubts, like the disciple Thomas. Well, actually, all the disciples doubted at some point, um, but Thomas is the one that is famous for it. So, but many of us, many of us struggle in that way. You know, we wonder things like, why doesn't God heal me? Um, why did God allow that abuse to happen to me? Why do so many bad things happen if there's, there's a loving God? Why do my prayers often seem to go unanswered? And, you know, why is there all that violence in the Old Testament? What's up with predestination? Is God's judgment fair? Is it loving? What's the deal with hell? Questions like that. You know, in my own story, I, <clears throat> I grew up in a Christian home, going to church every Sunday. And I would say somewhere around junior high, I started to personalize my faith. My faith started to get personal. And um, sometime in high school, I started reading apologetics books, which are, for anyone who doesn't know, apologetics is just uh, learning ways to defend your faith and the legitimacy of your faith through reason and argumentation and that sort of thing. And at some point in high school, I think I just sort of felt like I had arrived and like I, I knew my stuff. And, you know, if I argued with somebody about my faith, if they had half a brain, they would be convinced of whatever I was saying. And, you know, that was that. And I would say that sort of mindset <clears throat> continued probably throughout most of college and then at some point in my 20s, I don't know what it, what it was. I think it might have just been growing pains, natural maturation process. Maybe my brain was finally settling into its adult configuration. I don't know. But something happened where all of a sudden, the answers weren't as satisfying to me as they used to be. And I found that not only 
were the answers that I had in the past not satisfying me, but I had all these new questions, too, that I was wrestling with. And I found myself having a much harder time believing the faith that had been handed down to me. And honestly, during that time, I had a lot of frustration with God. Uh, because I just felt like I couldn't understand him. And I felt like he didn't make sense. I felt like he wasn't fair. You know, my prayer during that time, when I prayed, was a lot like the man in Mark 9, which was, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I remember that, ironically, one of the times that I was dealing the most with my doubt and my questions and my frustration was when I was at new staff training for Campus Crusade for Christ. I had been two years into working with Campus Crusade, and, and then I was preparing to go on, on staff longer. And I was at the training, and I was just wrestling. And I, I was so absorbed in thinking about theology and all these questions about predestination, God's sovereignty, heaven, hell, God's judgment, that I literally almost missed my commissioning ceremony with Campus Crusade. Um, not because I was trying to blow it off, but because I was just so wrapped up in thinking about what I was thinking, alone in my room, typing on my laptop, trying to make sense of God, that I looked at the clock and I realized, I've got 10 minutes to get a suit and tie on and get over to that ceremony, or the whole reason that I was here all this time is going to be lost. Because I had just been so absorbed in my questions. Now, during that time, I may have been angry with God, I may have been confused, but I wasn't denying him. I was like Jacob. I was wrestling with him. And the reason that I didn't just tap out of the match and say, this is impossible, God doesn't make sense, is because I wouldn't go, I wouldn't let go until he blessed me. And, and for me, not letting go meant dealing with the questions. It meant not ignoring me. It, it, it meant not just saying, oh, it's just all a mystery, you know, but it meant wrestling with them. And I didn't wrestle with those questions because I was rejecting God. I wrestled with those questions because I was growing. I was growing closer to him. And, you know, I still wrestle with a lot of those questions. I don't... I don't wrestle with the same level of angst and uncertainty that I did during that time. But, you know, my faith still includes the struggle of trying to understand God. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And, you know, maybe there's someone here this morning who's having trouble making sense of God. Maybe you feel like your relationship with God right now is a big struggle, a wrestling match. And, and maybe you feel like tapping out. And I just want to tell you, don't tap out. Keep wrestling, keep struggling, keep learning, keep seeking, and don't be ashamed of the struggle. Don't be embarrassed. Don't assume that there's something wrong with you because that struggle might just mean that you're meeting God. And this leads me to the third thing that happens when we meet God is it leads to blessing. If we're willing to struggle, 
it leads to blessing. That's what happened to Jacob, right? He struggled, he struggled, and his struggle resulted in blessing from God. You know, let's think about what that blessing looks like when we consider those two kinds of struggle, okay? If we are willing to engage in the struggle of facing ourselves and, 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 and not making excuses for our behavior and realizing the own way, our own ways, our own personal ways that we fall short of the glory of God, if we're willing to do that, that comes with the blessing of actual change, right? It comes with the blessing of actual freedom from patterns of sin and addiction that enslave us and ruin our relationships, right? That's an incredible blessing that's available through the struggle. And then if we're, really, if we're willing to engage in the struggle of dealing with our questions and our doubts and not just throwing God out when we have trouble understanding, if we're, willing, if we're willing to actually engage in that struggle, then the blessing that comes from that is a faith that is deep and that is real and that's authentic, a faith that can withstand the challenges and trials of life, you know, not some sort of cheap, shallow, bumper sticker, bubblegum Christianity, but something that, that is real. Deep waters. That's the blessing that comes. And with that, with that kind of faith comes a peace and a hope that is unwavering and lasting. And you know, the great thing about struggling with God is that unlike so many of the other struggles that we might have in our lives, this is a struggle that leads to blessing. You know, the struggle for, for money that doesn't always lead to blessing. The struggle for fame, that almost never leads to blessing. The struggle for, for attention or romantic love, sometimes it leads to blessing, sometimes it doesn't. But the struggle with God, if we don't tap out, that, that always ends in blessing. Finally, one more thing, number four. When we meet with God, it humbles us. It humbles us. It says that after Jacob experienced all this, he walked with a limp. I remember I was watching a TV show not too long ago, and there was a character on the show who was um, going to lead some, some people into battle, and he was very confident and cocky and sure of himself. And everything went wrong in the battle. Everybody but him died. And then when he got home, uh, at the end of the episode, there were about 30 seconds to a minute where it just showed him walking with a limp like this as he went back to his house. Now, why did the camera linger on him for that long? It was because it was a powerful illustration of, of the fact that this man had been humbled. Right? There's something about walking with a limp after a struggle that's a sign that you have been humbled. Now don't forget, even though Jacob walks away humbled, he also comes away blessed. Right? But in the process of getting that blessing, he was humbled. And the struggle left a mark on him. Now, Jacob can't run away from God. I mean, in a literal sense, he can't run away from God, right? Because his hip's all messed up. But in a deeper sense, he can't run away from God because he's been humbled. The struggle has humbled him. If we have really met God, we're going to walk with a limp. 
Not literally, but in our spirits. Because the experience will, will have humbled us. We will realize that we are sinners saved by grace. We'll realize that we don't understand it all. There are things that, that, that are impossible for us to fully grasp. We don't have it all figured out. But those realizations are blessings because they're the kinds of realizations that kill arrogance and foster kindness and patience and love. Now, this morning, maybe you're thinking, you know, I, I do know what this feels like. You're, you're hearing about what, it, what, what it's like to meet God, and you're going, you know what? That, that has happened to me. I have met God. But others of you might be thinking, you know what? I don't know if I've experienced this at all. Uh, maybe you're thinking, it's never been a personal experience for me. It's always just kind of been a social thing. And maybe you're thinking that any of the struggles that you've had, um, you tapped out, tapped out of a long time ago or before they really got real. Maybe you feel like you've been pretending to wrestle for a while, but you haven't really been wrestling. Maybe you're thinking, you know what, I haven't really been getting real with myself. Or I haven't really been seeking to understand God and asking the tough questions. And if that's how you feel, let me encourage you. you if you want to meet with him, you can. He's there. He wants, he wants to meet with you. And I believe if you want him to, he will. And I don't think you have to wait. You know, get alone, talk to him, and start wrestling. Start getting honest with yourself. Start asking the tough questions. And, and when you do, don't tap out. Keep wrestling. Because if we don't tap out, eventually the blessing comes. Let's pray. Lord, you challenge us in a lot of ways, but we thank you that your ultimate will for us is blessing. God, I pray that, that we would experience the blessing that comes from struggling with you in whatever form that struggle might take. God, help us to walk in the light of truth Help us to be real with ourselves and, and with you and with, with others. Help us, Lord, to not shy away from, from tough questions. And I pray that you would just instill in us the depth of faith that, that comes from being willing to, to ask those tough questions and struggle with you. God, shape and, and form us into people who are, who are more like you. Build that house, Lord. Turn us into a palace. In Jesus' name, amen.